Open again in your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, we will be in verses 12 to 20 together today. Uh, I am acquainted with a man who taught theology at a conservative evangelical seminary. You may not be aware of this, but most of uh, the men and women who would teach on that level, they've typically earned a PhD, a, a doctorate degree, and that would involve probably four years of undergrad education, perhaps a master's degree after that, and then earning a PhD, which could also take several more years. Uh, you're talking probably eight to ten years of formal training in the classroom uh, to be able to teach at that level. And he, this man had given his life to studying and teaching the Bible. Uh, he and his wife had a few children and appeared to be happily married. He was part of a good church and I think from the appearance of things would certainly have appeared to be a godly man, and I think most likely was. One day, one of his female students started to show uh, a great interest in his theological lectures, and it turns out that that interest went beyond uh, simply his lectures, and uh, she was young and attractive, and before long, they were engaged in what became a secret, intimate relationship that carried on for several years. I start with that story for a few reasons. Uh, One of the reasons I brought it up is for many of you, the text that we are about to look at, uh, you will go, hey, you know what, that's a great text. It's really important. Um, It's good it's in the Bible. And I know there are people who who will need to hear that message. But, you know, the sins that are brought up in this text and temptation towards sexual morality, that's not really me. That's not my struggle or temptation. And I would caution you uh, not to give yourself too much credit there. Uh, the Bible warns, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Another reason I started with that story is that this man didn't just go start living in sexual immorality one day. And this is not how it works. Before that ever happened, somewhere in there, he justified it in his mind. And then continued to do that all throughout that relationship Uh, Do you realize that though you may not be living in any kind of sexual immorality, uh, your mind, and you may not even realize this, your mind could already actually be accepting of it? Or perhaps kind of in, in some kind of neutral territory? And maybe all that's lacking for you is opportunity, and if opportunity came, you might fall. I mean, there, there may be some young people here and, and you're a teenager right now and you've never been in a serious dating relationship and all of a sudden, a year or two down the road, that could happen and there's some young man or some young woman that is very much interested in, in you and you both feel that you love each other and it might just not be too many hurdles in your mind that you would have to, to cross to get to the point where you're actually engaged in something that God would call immorality. And another reason I've brought this story up is there may be some of you here who are currently living in sexual immorality, and perhaps that's a, something that everyone knows, or it may be something like this story that I brought up that is secret. There's a simple reality that many Christians easily justify immorality. And that seems to be exactly what was going on with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, when we read this passage, it's kind of like uh, maybe you're in your living room and someone else is there with you and they get a phone call and they're chatting on the phone and you're hearing one side of that conversation and you're trying to piece together the other side and maybe you got a pretty good idea, but you're not hearing both sides of the conversation. And that's kind of what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're hearing Paul's side, but apparently there was more that was being said by the Corinthians and we don't get all of those details. 
Apparently, though, some of the men of the church of Corinth were going to prostitutes and then arguing for their right to do that. And on the one hand, that seems absolutely shocking. I mean, how, how would a Christian do that and argue that that was okay? But you've got to remember, Corinth was a pagan port city where prostitution was not only legal, it was common, it was every day, it was accepted. In fact, just a historical example, uh, historians tell us that the temple where people worshipped the goddess uh, Aphrodite had over 1,000 cult prostitutes at its peak. Sexual immorality is what the Corinthians were known for. It was literally built into the fabric and fiber of their culture. This was common. This was normal. Nobody thought twice of it. We'll see in this text that because sexual immorality starts in the mind, that's where it starts. Your thinking needs transformed by truth. And Paul is addressing the mind. We, we would have texts where God would tell us, do this and don't do that. But that's actually, uh, this text is not just some kind of blanket prohibition. God is actually addressing your thinking, knowing that these type of things and so many other sins start with our minds. In similar fashion, Jesus said, out of the heart come things like sexual immorality, Matthew 15, 19, and 20. Jesus is saying, this is something that starts inside of you, in your heart. It starts within, which is why this passage addresses your internal reasonings, your thinking. Let's look together at this text, 1 Corinthians 6. I'll read verses 12 down through verse 20. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're going to look together today at two keys to transform thinking. That's God's goal. He's not just trying to, to alter our behavior, but actually to transform our thinking. And so the first key to that transformed thinking is to purge your mind of man's flawed reasonings. You know, if you want to sin, and oftentimes with our sin, no matter what it is, we say, well, I want to do that. And if you want to sin, you'll find a way to reason away truth to justify whatever it is you want to do. You can make it acceptable in your mind. We're all really good at that. And, and I think we're being warned here to beware of using flawed reasonings, uh, man's flawed reasonings to justify sexual sin. You've got to purge those types of reasonings out of your mind. What types of reasonings? Well, you need to purge out flawed views about the Christian's freedom. Look at verse 12. Paul writes, all things, are, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 
What we find in that verse is what appears to be a Corinthian slogan. In fact, as you look at the verse, you'll see there's quotation marks uh, at the the very front end of that verse. And those quotation marks are around the, the phrase, all things are lawful for me. You'll see that phrase shows up twice, both times with quotation marks. It appears that that's what the Corinthians were saying. All things are lawful for me. Or another way we might word it is, I have the right to do anything. It's the Christian freedom argument. I'm free in Christ. I'm no longer under the law. Don't you know we're under grace? I'm free and have the freedom to act without restraint. And actually, Paul was a huge, huge proponent of Christian freedom. Where do you think the Corinthians got this idea? Probably from Paul. Remember the book of Galatians? and In the book of, the, uh, book of Galatians, Paul's arguing against legalism and he's saying, no, you, you don't earn favor with God by your works. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by the Old Testament law. Christian liberty is the freedom from having to work to establish your own righteousness and it's freedom from the Old Testament law. But the Corinthians were mistaking that liberty, that freedom, with license. Well, we, we can do whatever we want. Paul warned elsewhere not to use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh. Uh, in verse 12, I think two questions emerge that, that Paul is bringing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. You're saying we can do whatever we want. All things are lawful for us. Here's a question for you. Is it beneficial? He says, but not all things are helpful. Uh, God's pretty clear. He says this is a sin, but that aside for a moment, you're arguing it's all fine, it's all good. Is it helpful? Seems to be implying that not all sexual relationships are, are beneficial. And one important thing for a Christian is it's not just the question all the time of, well, you know what, uh, is, this, is this thing lawful for me or not? Am I allowed to do it? Is it beneficial? Is it profitable for me? Isn't it profitable for others? And it seems that Paul's starting real broadly here and he's saying, you know what? What you are doing is probably not beneficial. And then another question, is it controlling me? Sure, sure, sure. Say whatever you want. Say you have the liberty to do it. But he says, I will not be enslaved by anything. Sexual immorality has the ability to be quite controlling and enslaving. It could be like a drug addiction. The Bible mentions in the positive setting of a husband and wife and their their, uh, marital intimacy, he speaks of that as something that should be intoxicating, very positively. Intoxicating and full of delight. And it seems here he's like, he brings up this, you shouldn't be enslaved by anything. It's almost like he's bringing up to, to these people I have this feeling that you never just went there once. No, this has probably turned into quite the habit. And you know what? That's not freedom. You're enslaved. You're in bondage. You can say all things are lawful for you, but are you being controlled? Because that's not God's plan for your life. You need to purge out flawed views about the Christian's freedom and also purge out flawed views about the Christian's body. Look at verse 13. Food, and again, you'll see this is in quotation marks. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Again, you'll find what appears to be the argument of the Corinthians there in quotation marks, and their argument has at least three uh, lines of reasoning. 
You'll notice there that they make an argument about the body's appetites. They're saying uh, the food, or food is for the body and the body for food. And that's how this, this whole scenario works. Uh, a hunger for sexual immorality is just like your hunger for food. Didn't you know? Food is enjoyable and it's, need, it's needed. And so when you're hungry, what do you do? Well, then you eat. And likewise, sexual immorality, it's enjoyable and it's needed. And so when you want that, when you, you have physical cravings, then you should have it. It's really just a basic normal human appetite that should be satisfied just like any other appetite that we would have in our bodies. It's that simple. They also make an argument about the body's purpose. Just like the stomach and food were made for each other, so the body and immorality were, were made for each other. They're arguing. And they make as well an argument about the body's destiny. They talk about food and the stomach being destroyed. They're saying these are just the things of our earthly existence. Both the stomach and the food, where did they come from? They came from the dirt. And where are they going to go? Right back into the dirt. Both are going to return to the dirt, meaning that, that, that both of those things, talking about the food and the stomach, uh, to both of those things, when it comes to eternity and our heavenly existence beyond this life, we're no longer going to need our stomachs. We're no longer going to need food. It's no longer relevant. Those things won't be relevant in eternity. And they're arguing from that to, to their sexual immorality. Yeah, it's the same thing. This is just earthly, bodily functions no big deal. And all three of those preceding arguments hinge on a sharp distinction that the Corinthians were making between the material and, and the immaterial. Between the body and the soul. Look at verses 13 and 14. They're arguing food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. And then Paul counters with this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord. And then note this next phrase of particular significance. And will also raise us up by his power. Paul counters here with an argument about the body's appetites. All bodily appetites are not the same. He's saying, you, you can't pull that card. That doesn't work. You can't compare hunger with any other appetite. It, it, this is different. And he also makes an argument about the body's purpose. The body is for the Lord. That's its purpose. Your physical body was created for the Lord. It wasn't made for sexual immorality. Your body is the vessel that you serve God in and with. And it's the vessel that you glorify God in. And he also makes an argument to counter their argument about the body's destiny. The body is not destined for destruction. The Corinthians are making it all real simple. Yeah, you die and your whole body's just going to decompose in the earth. And Paul says, no, the body is not destined for destruction, but for resurrection. It doesn't simply return to the dirt. Your body, here's what's going to happen. Paul is saying your body will be transformed and it will be glorified. And just like the body of Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave, that's your future. Your body will be resurrected just like Jesus was. And it seems what he's getting at here is... Is, is this, maybe I could ask you a question. 
How much of your being does God save? You are composed, we all are, of material and immaterial parts, so to speak. You have a body and a soul. Does redemption simply extend to your soul? We talk about and we sing about how God saves our souls, and that's true. But is that where it stops? Does redemption simply extend to your your soul, or does it include your body too? And that's what he's highlighting at the end of verse 14. He says, this is beyond just God saving your soul. In your union with Christ, you're united with him in death, burial, and resurrection. It's the entirety of your being. Jesus saved all of you. Jesus Christ died for your whole being, body, and soul. The Corinthians justified their actions by making a sharp distinction between the material and the spiritual, but that distinction cannot be made. And we read in Romans about, uh, about humanity basically groaning, God's children groaning for the redemption of their bodies. A couple years back, I made a purchase in order to do some suspension work on my truck, and I bought what has since become, I think, probably my favorite tool. I bought a 26-gallon air compressor, and uh, if you know how air compressors work, as they're compressing air, often what happens is condensation builds up uh, within the tank of the air compressor. And at the bottom of my compressor, uh, just an uh, inch or two off the ground, there's this little valve that if, if, you, if you let all the air out of the tank first, um, and so there's no longer any compressed air in that tank, then you can go open up that valve on the bottom and the, the condensation will drip out of the bottom of the tank. And it's important to do because if you leave it in there, uh, it'll start to rust out the bottom of your tank. Well, I was uh, using my compressor the other day and thought I'd better do that. It's, it's, it's been a little while since I've done it. And uh, the only problem was I forgot to let all of the air pressure out of the tank first. I don't know if I had it cranked up to 150 PSI or something like that. I mean, this, the tank is it's full of compressed air. And I wasn't thinking about it, and I crawled down on my garage floor on my hands and on my knees down there where that valve was literally just a couple inches off the floor, and I turned it. And you can imagine what happened. At 150 PSI, all this rusty water comes flying out of the bottom of the tank, hits the concrete floor, and all of it up into my face, just purging out that tank. And I think in similar fashion, whatever flawed reasonings may be filling your brain, They need purged out, and they need to come out quickly, just like what happened with that thing. Just All that garbage in there, all those flawed reasonings, all those reasonings that do not line up with God's truth, they got to come out, and they've got to come out now, or they will kill you. Sexual immorality starts in the mind, and you must purge your mind of man's flawed reasonings. And I just ask you to think, what is in your mind right now? Are you considering some of those reasonings are going, yeah, you know, those things have to go. But it's not enough to just get the flawed thoughts out. You've got to get the right ones in, which leads us to our second key to transform thinking. Fill your mind with God's perfect reasonings. God has some thoughts too. And that's what you need to fill your mind with. And Paul is going to offer three of those of God's reasonings in verses 15 to 20. A few things about these. All three of them argue that, as we've already seen, that the body is for the Lord. Your physical body is for the Lord. We saw that in verse 13. 
And all three of these reasonings, they're only true for Christians. What he's about to say, interestingly enough, is not true of a person who does not have God dwelling within them, who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And also, all three of these begin with this phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? You should probably know this. Do you not know? But again, what is he addressing? Is he addressing the will? No, he's addressing the mind. He's addressing what we're thinking. And so let's look at God's reasonings. His first is this, your body is a member of Christ. Look back at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. When God caused you to be born again, he united you with Jesus Christ in what we might call a living organic union. A union that's actually somewhat hard to explain and describe. But it's the type of union that exists between, uh, as we read in scripture, of a vine and its branches. It's also the type of union that exists uh, between a human body and all of its members, its arms and its legs. The, The way that your human body is united, it's that type of union. It's living and it's organic. And God redeemed your whole being, all of you, body and soul. And we do wait for the future redemption of our bodies, but his salvation is it's a whole type of redemption. And then he united the whole of you to Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that I can fully explain that, but it's what the Bible teaches. And what was yours became his, and what was his became yours. In that union, you got all of Christ's righteousness and he took all of your unrighteousness and and back and forth on all of those things. But given that reality of this, this living organic union, think about the implications of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, Paul argues, severs your members from Christ. It severs your bodily members from Jesus. Verse 15 continues, shall I take, and actually the idea is, shall I take away the members of Christ, speaking of your physical body, and make them members of a prostitute. Never. Just think about what would have to happen for that to occur. How do you take something away from an organic union? How do you take a limb from your body? I mean, if you want my arm, how are you going to get it? <laughs> if, how do you take a, a branch from a vine? You don't just unplug it. Oh, I'd like, let's just unplug your arm. And it doesn't work that way. You sever it or you amputate it. I was recently had run some power out to our chicken coop. And so the inspector came by to inspect it. And he had a clipboard in one hand and a pen in another. And he was making some notes. And at some point his pen dropped on the ground or something. And He apologized, and I didn't even know what he was apologizing about. And then he holds up his hand, and he goes, Yeah, um, I've just had a lot of trouble ever since I lost my finger. And I was like, Oh, I didn't realize you had lost your finger. But he's showing me his his hand, and he's missing his finger. And I said, What what happened to your finger? And he mentioned that he was into... um, like miniature airplanes, I think remote control airplanes and stuff, and he was working on it. It was funny. It actually sounded like he was doing something electrical, and this the propeller engaged and just lopped off his finger. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds brutal. That sounds awful. Ouch. One moment he had his finger, the next moment he didn't. When it, there's an organic union like that, it, 
It's a painful separation when a member is removed. And I think what's implied is that to be joined in a sexually immoral union involves some kind of brutal separation of the union that is supposed to exist between you and Christ. That you you can't have both of those unions simultaneously. And therefore, sexual immorality becomes unthinkable. Paul ends verse 15 with the word, never. Why would a Christian ever do that? And then we're led to a second of God's reasonings. Your body, when joined to another, creates oneness. Look at verses 16 and 17. Again, he starts with these words, or do you not know? He's he's speaking to our minds and our thoughts. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit. With him. The physical union of two people creates oneness. And Paul argues this from Genesis 2 24. And you remember way back in Genesis, he's he's talking about a husband and wife, and and they're married and, and they become one. They become one flesh. And certainly back in Genesis 2 24, that's talking about much more than just physically, it's talking about a much greater union than just that. And I think it's important to note here that Paul is not saying that sexual intimacy creates a marriage. Uh, Malachi is clear. How does he describe marriage in in the book of Malachi 2 verse 14? It's called a covenant of companionship. Nevertheless, though, whenever two people are united, there is a oneness. And I I think it's a, a sobering reminder to us that intimacy is never casual. No such thing exists. It can't exist like that. If you look at these verses, though, and you follow the word one throughout verses 16 and 17, it becomes clear that sexual morality is a sin that actually divides your being and rips you apart, so to speak. Remember, a person consists of two parts at a minimum, a material part and an immaterial part. What are those two parts? Well, you've got a physical body that you're all sitting there in today, and you have a soul, And if you look at verses 16 and 17 in the scenario that's described, the body becomes one in one sense and the soul becomes one in another sense. When you think about your body and soul, they separate at death. Death is the separation of the soul from the body, right? And in verses 16 and 17, we see your body and your soul and the body we read is joined in this scenario, to a prostitute, and the spirit is joined to God. You've got two different unities happening, two different unions happening. Who you are is literally being torn in two. Your soul's united over here, and your body's united over here, ripping you apart in the middle. It's like a death of sorts in some way, shape, or form, where soul and body are torn from each other. It's a sin that divides your being. And it's also a sin that you must flee. Verse 18 begins, flee sexual immorality, run away. And we have an excellent example of this in the Old Testament with the story of Joseph. You remember, he's faithfully working in Potiphar's house. He's a slave that's been carried off to Egypt. He's just simply working hard and being a good steward in Potiphar's house. 
probably an extremely wealthy man. And his wife is, Potiphar's wife's probably just sitting around day after day after day, perhaps flirting with Joseph or this or that or the other. And, and one day finally comes where she catches Joseph and seeks to seduce him. She literally grabs him. And what does Joseph do? He runs away, leaving his garment in her arms, getting out of there as quickly as possible. And I find it interesting that God tells us here to flee, that that is the word that he uses. There are some temptations that you simply cannot just stand and fight. And this is one of them. You cannot stand and fight because you will lose, and you will lose every time. And so you run. And that's what God tells you to do here, to run. We find as well that this sin of sexual immorality is a sin against the body. Look at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In all honesty, I don't know if I know exactly what Paul means there. And I think uh, most people that have studied this text and even many commentators writing on it, people are just kind of racking their brains trying to make sense of God's statement there. What did he mean? And I don't know that I fully understand, but I do know that Paul is not saying that sexual sin or sexual immorality is the worst of all sins. He's not saying that. But he is saying that it's unique. That, that it, it finds itself in its own kind of category and there's no sin that's quite like it in its effect. And perhaps verse 13 gives us a clue to the meaning of, of verse 18. Verse 13 said this. It said that the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Again, a statement that we're not fully sure what all is meant by that, but it is a huge, huge statement. The body is meant for the Lord. Your body was created by God to be the instrument in which you serve and please God in. And on the flip side of that, the Lord was made for your body. In some way, shape, or form, your physical being is dependent on Jesus Christ. And sexual immorality takes your body away, not just from its intended purpose, but also away from its source of life and from its source of nourishment, Jesus Christ. And there's no other sin that takes you away from Jesus quite like that. And probably this whole idea... Of, of sinning against your own body is multi, multifaceted with a lot going on there. Well, God's given us one more of his reasonings in verses 19 and 20, and that is that your body belongs to the Lord. Look at verse 19. Again, he begins with, do you not know? Addressing your mind. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. It's pretty clear there that your body is not yours. It's not your body and you can't do with it whatever it is that you want. And you need to recognize that, well, what is your body? It's God's temple. At salvation, God gave you the Holy Spirit, an amazing thought that, that at the moment where you put your trust in Christ, where you repented of your sins and trusted Christ on the physical side, or on, on, the, on the human side of that equation, so to speak. And at the same time, uh, God brought you forth and made you a new creature, causing you to be born again. When all of that happened, God came to dwell 
within you. His Spirit came to dwell within you, and your body has been set apart for the Holy Spirit's dwelling. Do you remember the Old Testament and the tabernacle? And first there was a tent, and then there was the temple. What was at the very heart of both of those? The Holy of Holies. Where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it's like your body is like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, made for God to inhabit and dwell. It's his dwelling place. And your body is not your own. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why is your body not your own? I mean, you take care of it every day. You take a shower and clean it every day. You feed it. You maybe exercise to keep your body in good shape. And I think we just think of it, well, this is mine. But God says that it's not. Well, it's not your own because you didn't make it. Who made your body? God did. But that's not actually what he brings up here. What he brings up here is not only were you made by God, but you were purchased by him too. God bought you. He redeemed you. And as we just saw, God didn't just redeem your soul. He redeemed your body too, and it will be included in resurrection. He bought all of you, body and soul. And how did he do that? With a price, an infinite price. He gave his life and he gave his blood. He shed his blood. And the conclusion comes there at the end of verse 20. So given all that, what should you do? You should glorify, you should magnify God in your body. This language of redemption means that you are now a slave to God. It means that he owns all of you and that your primary concern should be to please your master. And that includes what you do with your physical body. Sexual immorality starts in the mind, which means you've got to fill your mind with with God's thoughts and God's reasonings and whatever it is that is true. And because that is how it works, your thinking needs transformed by God's truth. It started uh, with the story of this man. And in God's mercy, that man and the woman that he was involved with, uh, I don't know if, I think it was two years later or something like that, uh, their secrecy and what was going on finally came to the surface. And what they were doing became known and they were found out. I don't know what happened with her, but I do know what happened with him and the rest of his story. And when it came to the surface, he was confronted and I don't know if it happened immediately or sometime later, but he repented. And he confessed his sin to God. He made it right. He worked with the, the pastors and leadership of his church over, I think, quite the period of time to, to deal with all this sin in his life and, and work on restoring his relationship with his wife. And that story that I told you now happened several, several years ago. And this man is actively serving the Lord today which I think is so awesome. And it's a reminder that God is a God who forgives, but he's not okay with our sin. And maybe I could conclude just by reading the verses of last week's text. If you look back up at chapter 6, and maybe we'll pick up there in verse 11. He mentions all these sins, one of which would be sexual immorality. And he's talking about the Corinthians before they came to Christ, and he says to them, and such were some of you, 
But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart for God and his purposes. You were justified or declared righteous in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, God has washed you and he's cleansed you of your sin and he's set you apart for his purposes. And if that's not what's going on right now, and if you're not living for him, God wants you to repent and to turn from your sin and say, God, I am yours, my body and my soul, all of me was redeemed by you. You shed your blood for my whole being and here it is again. And maybe that's what some of you need to do. You need to repent. And maybe there are others of you sitting here today and maybe it's news to you that Jesus died for your whole being. Maybe you've never heard that God owns you or, or that he is your rightful owner. And he is. He created you. And he owns you by creation because he formed and fashioned you. But the Bible teaches that you and I have all rebelled and we've sinned. And that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you, to buy you back, and to pay the price for your sins on the cross and satisfy God's wrath for your sin uh, in your place. And then he summons you. You know what you need to do with that? You need to repent. You need to confess that sin, all of your sin, and acknowledge that you deserve God's wrath. And you need to put your trust in Christ and his work on the cross. And you need to give your life to him. God, my life is yours. And if you haven't done that, you can cry out to God even today and say, God, would you save me? And I want you to have my whole being, my body and my soul. And I want eternal life in your presence. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time?